Good. Good morning, two cities. I cannot tell you how incredible it is for me to be standing here um, looking at you. Um, Pastor Kyle did not tell you the full truth in that uh, little video introduction. Uh, truth is, I've actually been begging him to let me preach at your church for years. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I basically, you know, you guys planted, what, six and a half, seven years ago, and it kind of started with a bang, and all these people showed up, started to come to Christ. It was like a revival. And I'm like, man, Kyle, this is amazing. Let me come and let me preach here. And he's like, JD, I'll do respect, but man, I don't think you're ready for what's happening at two cities. Uh, I think you need to, and I was like, I mean, it was a little weird because, you know, I felt like we planted him out, and, you know, but you know, I was like, all right, well, you know, so a couple years after that, I wrote a book called Just Ask. It was a book about revival. And I thought, oh, okay, well now, you know, I've written something about, you know, kind of the kind of things he's experiencing. And I was like, Kyle, here's a, send him a copy of the book. And next time I saw him at one of our events, I was like, hey, let me come and talk about, you know, the prayer and the events of that book. And he's like, man, I read the book and man, I just, I don't think you're ready to preach at two cities yet. I, I just, and I, I was at this point, I was like, I don't know to be offended or, or what. Um, I got elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention two years after that. I was like, now he's got to let me come because I, you know, it's like a, and so I called him up. He's like, man, I just, I've been listening to you and you, you know, your church and I, it's just, I feel like you're not ready. And at that point, y'all, I've just totally bewildered. And I'm like, man, I don't understand. Like we planted you. I've written a book that I think would be relevant. I'm serving in these roles. I just want to come and see, man. I'll come for free. I'll pay my own way. He said, now, now you are ready to come and preach in two cities. So that's what it took. So here I am. And uh, you're going to get what you pay for. Um, you know, on a, on a serious note, I will tell you, it is very, very meaningful uh, for me to be able to stand here. I've certainly heard uh, from Pastor Kyle about what is going on here and Donovan and others. Um, now, you guys know Pastor Kyle loves you guys, right? Like, loves you to the point of annoying, bragging, exaggeration, I think. I've told him several times, like, look, if half of the things you're saying about two cities is true, then that's the greatest church on earth. Uh, but he loves you genuinely, and he believes those things. Uh, and he, you know, if uh, there are many, many things that I could commend about his leadership here, and you know many of them, but uh, the thing that makes a leader a leader, um, and a leader that is the kind that sees what you guys have seen here is when he and, 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 and Margie genuinely love this church, and he loves you, uh, the way that he talks about you. And uh, I'm like, Kyle, I grew up in Winston-Salem. I know, I know what people are like in Winston-Salem, but uh, he believes um, that God is doing something here, and he is. And so it's hard sometimes to see it when you're in the middle of it, um, but I want you to know that there is really something special that is happening here. And uh, what a joy for us to be able to, um, to just watch from couple cities over and just to rejoice in what God is doing. Um, what I want to talk about this morning actually relates very closely to that uh, because we learned as a church um, about 15 years ago that the way that we were going to impact the world was not going to be through growing uh, just a large congregation in Raleigh. Um, the way that we were going to impact the world was going to be to raise up leaders like Kyle and Donovan and the Taylors and uh, some of the other incredible people that, that have come out of our church to be a part of what is going on here. We began to use phrases around our church like, uh, we send out our best, or um, phrases like, um, uh, we judge our success not by our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity. Um, and that's led us to get behind people like Kyle to recognize God's hand on them and, uh, and just say, let's celebrate what God is doing there um, what I want to talk to you about is how you were supposed to personally be a part of that. Uh, you may or may not ever leave to go on a church plan. Uh, you may or may not ever leave to go serve overseas. But I want you to not just be an observer in this, 
but to be a part of a, a movement where you have as much ownership in it and as much stake in it because you understand your role in it uh, the same way that Kyle and the leadership team here does. Um, so if you got your Bibles this morning, uh, if you will take them out and you will open them up or turn them on, I guess, uh, to John chapter 20. Um, I grew up in church not far from here, just actually a couple miles up your road, Salem Baptist Church, as he mentioned. My pastor there used to always say, uh, Dr. E.C. Sheehan was my first uh, pastor, he used to always say, um, the sweetest sound he got to hear in the morning was the ruffling of the pages as people opened their Bibles. Um, I, listen, as a pastor of a church full of millennials and Gen Zers, I never get to hear that sound. I get to see the, the warm glow of God's word on their faces. Um, and I'll take it. Okay, whatever you got, whatever, don't play games on your phone, but get it out. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, as you're turning there, the late Rodney Stark is one of our generation's probably most significant church historians. He points out that by the end of the first century, there were a grand total of about, he says, 7,530 Christians, which is an oddly specific number, if you ask me. Um, 7,530, at the end of the first century, after all the apostles are dead, the total number, 7,530, even if he's off by 1,000 on either side. We're still talking less than 10,000. Uh, the church that I pastor in Raleigh is not the biggest church in North Carolina, and there are gonna be more there in that one church than there were in the entire world at the end of the first century. And yet, by the time you get, Rodney Stark points out, by the time you get to 312 AD, we know that by that point, over half of the Roman Empire, millions and millions and millions of people, half of the so-called civilized world, now confesses Christ. And he says, how do you do that? He says, how did that church go from that small amount of people, 7,500 people, to a point where it's millions and millions and over half are identified? He said, especially when you consider they didn't have a single one of the things that we think are necessary to grow a church today. Money, they don't have any money, they didn't have any buildings, they didn't have any property, they didn't have any influential people in the Senate, they didn't have printing presses, they didn't have the ability to organize conferences. He said, how did they do it? Rodney Stark points out, he says that one of the things that they did have that we don't have, not that those other things are bad, is he says that they had the power of multiplication at work within them. Every believer understood that they were the ones responsible to multiply the Great Commission, and every church understood that it was responsible to multiply itself. And Rodney Stark points out that that conviction, that power of multiplication came from one of the last conversations Jesus had with his disciples before he ascended into heaven the one that I've got open in front of you right now, John 20, after the resurrection. I want you to look, it's just a couple of verses. John 20, look at verse 21. Jesus says to these disciples after he's resurrected, as the Father has sent me, even so now I am sending you. And when he had said this, but there's so much in those two phrases. Every time I read it, I just get overwhelmed with the weight of it. And when he had said this, verse 22, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Y'all, that statement, as the Father had sent me, even so I'm sending you, is an extremely significant statement in the Gospel of John because Jesus' primary identity in the Gospel of John is the sent one. He is called that more than 60 different times in the Gospel of John. The primary designation for God the Father in the Gospel of John is the Father who sent me. That's Jesus' primary identity. And now... In one of the final conversations he has with these disciples, he bestows that identity, his identity, his main identity when he was here, he bestows that on his followers, to all of his followers. And that means that everything else that we're gonna do as followers of Jesus, everything else we do in the kingdom of God, 
is going to flow out of that baseline identity. By the way, John is not the only one who heard it this way in Luke's account of the Great Commission. Here's how he records Jesus saying it. Different conversation, but the same general thrust. Acts 1.8, he says to these disciples right before he ascends to heaven, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, here's the word, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Y'all think about all the different identities he could have put in that blank. It would have all been true. You're going to be my worshipers because that's the most important thing in the Christian life. You're going to be my worshipers. You're going to be my Bible studiers. You're going to be my prayer warriors. You're going to be my social justice advocates. All of those would have been fine. He could have chosen any of them to put there, but the one that he chose in the last conversation was witnesses, sent one. That's your primary identity. And that means whatever else you do, whatever else you're called to, whatever else you're engaged in, whatever else your profession is, your identity that you live out of is sent one. Remember hearing this famous true story about Albert Einstein, you know, when he was in his old age, he had begun to have some senility problems and he lived up in New Jersey. You take the train from there back and forth to New York and in his old age, he gets on the train and he's headed up and the conductor comes through and you know, where they're getting the tickets and um, Einstein stands up and he's feeling around his pocket for his ticket and he just can't, I mean, he can't like, like he's checking all his pockets, he gets this panic look on his face and the young man conductor kind of eventually after watching him for 30 seconds said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about it. I know who you are. And Einstein responds, young man, I know who I am. I just cannot remember where I'm going. I think a lot of Christians would be in the opposite. They feel like they know where they're going. They just don't remember who they are. And that affects how they understand how they're going. Jesus' identity he puts on them is sent one. You are the ones who are sent. The conviction that the early church held that made them so successful was that every believer was sent. At the Summit Church, we often talk about the myth of calling. The myth of calling is this, that calling is a sacred privilege that is reserved for a select few super-Christians in the body of Christ that is conveyed through a mystical experience. We call it the Cheerios myth of discerning the will of God. The idea is that if God's gonna call you into something significant, if he wants to use you, then he appears to you in your Cheerios, so to speak. He just spells out missionary, you know, or pastor or something like that. I'm just going to tell you, I've stared at my Cheerios for years. All it's ever spelled out was ooh over and over and over again. <laughs> that is a myth. That is not, I mean, that is not how, let me be clear. If God spells out something in your Cheerios, by all means, you should pay attention to it. But the myth is that God only calls a few of us that way. And the rest of us, if he hasn't done that, then what he wants from you is to be a good person, be involved in church, pay attention, pay your tithes. That's the myth. The truth is you're called. Because the calling to leverage your life for the Great Commission was included in the call to follow Jesus. They're not two different calls. Jesus said, Matthew 4, 19, follow me, that's salvation, right? And I will make you a fisher of men, that's mission. Which means when you accepted Jesus, you accepted the call to mission. The question is no longer if you're called, the question now is merely where and how it is. That is your identity. The myth is that it's only for a handful of us. There are four components to being sent that are tucked into those verses. In fact, there's about 40, but I'm only gonna pull out four of them. Four things that y'all, if you believe these things, they will make you fulfill this identity. Four things you believe coming out of these verses. Number one, sent people recognize that God is always at work around them. 
Some people recognize God is always at work around them. Now, why do I say that? Here's why I say that. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It means that the way that Jesus was sent, you are sent. Jesus talks about how he was sent earlier in the Gospel of John. So we've got to jump back there and see what he meant by that. John 5, verse 17. You don't need to turn there. I'll put it on the screen for you. I want you to listen how Jesus explains him being sent. Watch this. My Father is working until now, and I am working alongside of him. I can only do what I previously the Father see, previously see the Father doing. In other words, Jesus said, my being sent is a recognition that God is always at work around me, and I'm looking for where he is at work, and I am joining him in that. Years ago, I did a Bible study back when I was in college, so six, seven years ago, and uh, it profoundly changed my view of ministry. Some of you have done it, especially if you're a seasoned Christian. You remember this. It was by a guy named Henry Blackaby. It was called Experiencing God. And the whole point of this Bible study was success in ministry is not coming up with great ideas for God and finding great leaders to lead those ideas. Success in ministry is figuring out where God is at work and joining him in it. From cover to cover in your Bible, God's always the one taking the initiative and the church's responsibility is merely to respond. And he said, you gotta get rid of this idea that, that, there's, that there's talent and there's leadership capacity and that's what God wants. You gotta get rid of this idea that, that the way that you're going to, to be a successful parent is to read all the great parenting books that there are and then, and then just mastering that so that you can shape your kid. Successful parenting, successful ministry, all it is is figuring out where God is at work and joining him in it. And I told Pastor Kyle last night, it's like Kathy Keller, wife of Tim Keller, pastor up at Manhattan. She, she always says, she says, you wanna know how to start a successful church? It's easy. Find out where God is sending a revival and move there the month before. Because that's what success is, is just figuring out where God is at work. What that tells you, friend, is that God is always at work around you. That's what Jesus understood. The Father's working. He has been. He is now. He is at work in the lives of your friends and your kids and your city and your neighborhood. Your job, my job, is to figure out where that is and step into the stream of that power. That's what successful ministry is, successful parenting. Like I said, I mean, if there's anything that has convinced me of this one principle, it's not ministry, it's parenting. I got four teenagers now all living in my house. I call them my North Koreans because they're smart enough to make nuclear bombs now, just not mature enough to handle them. And so <laughs> my whole thing is like, God, if there's ever been one forum where I'm like, I don't have the capacity to shape them and to form spiritual fruit in them, God is the one that does that. So in the morning, I don't get up overwhelmed as a parent. I get up and say, God, what are you gonna do with these little heathens today? And how do you wanna use me as a part of this as I'm walking alongside of them? Because you're the one writing their story. You're at work in their lives. And I just wanna join you in what you're doing. Number two, sent people have a rich theology of place. Now y'all, theology of place, that might be a new term for you. But what all that it means is that you understand that wherever you are, God sent you there. Being sent does not always mean going somewhere else. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it means going on the church plant, moving overseas. But a lot of times what it means is recognizing that the place where God has you, he wants you to live sent there. Living sent is not just for those people who leave this place. Acts 17, watch this, the Apostle Paul, you don't need to turn there, I'll put it on the screen. Paul says, God determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of the nation's dwelling places. He determined where the nations are. Why did he do that? 
Why does he control borders? Why does he control refugee movements? Why does he control world politics, Paul says? So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, Paul says God has sovereignly, he has sovereignly directed the placement of nations for the purpose of these nations hearing the gospel. Now, friend, Paul here is talking about whole nations. But wouldn't it stand to reason that if God does that with whole nations, he does that with individuals too? That God has been in charge of shaping your personal borders, what neighborhoods you live in, what cubicle you sit in, what hall you're living on in your college, who you sit next to on a, on a, on a plane. You understand that God is the one, he's saying, I'm controlling all of these borders and I've got you there for a reason and I want you to turn your radar on because you were sent there. I recently read a book actually called Sent. The authors um, of this book work with a ministry called Crew, which is a ministry that works on college campuses. I'm sure you have some represented right here in your church. They've started this national campaign. I love it. So the, the whole campaign is just one question. What do you see? What do you see? What do you see? What needs do you see out there? What's in front of you? Who is there? It's the idea that the Father is always at work around you. What do you see? Open your eyes. Listen, if you can remember one thing leaving here this morning is that God has determined your place. Where you're living right now, it's not an accident. Even random encounters. Some people are always just asking and watching for that. 2 Corinthians 2.14, love this verse where it says, Paul says, God put us in this place to be an aroma of Christ. I'm just here to smell up the place for Jesus in a good way. And what happens is sometimes God just opens up somebody's nose. And they, they, they pick that up and that draws them like being drawn to a kitchen where there's baked bread being, being made. You just, you have to walk toward it. He's saying, that's what we are. And God draws people toward us. A couple, um, about six months ago, I was standing in my kitchen. There was a young lady standing there. She was the leader of my daughter's small group. My, she was my senior in high school's small group leader. And um, I introduced myself to her. And uh, she got this little coy smile on her face. She said, we've actually met before. She says, you won't remember this, I'm sure. She said, about two years ago, though, she said, um, we both had a 6 a.m. flight leaving from the RDU airport flying to Atlanta. She said, so we're all in there at 5, 10 in the morning waiting to get on the plane. And she said, you walked in and noticed I was reading a book by, I think it was Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. And you just like stopped and looked at me and said, that is a really deep book to read this early in the morning. And she said, I looked up and was like, this is a strange conversation to have at 5, 10 in the morning. She said, but uh, she said, yeah. And she said, then you just stopped and said, are you trying to find God? And she said, I said, well, sort of. And I stumbled out a few things that are appropriate to five o'clock in the morning and said, you just stood right there and you just began to share your story of how you had gone through a similar search and how Jesus revealed himself to you and how Jesus had changed your life. She said, I thought it was a little weird, but that's kind of all I thought about it. It's just, it's, that was the end of it. By the way, um, when she said that, I remember that conversation because I remember feeling the Holy Spirit, just seeing it and feeling like the Holy Spirit was saying, you need to at least just ask that girl a question. So I, I did, I never tell these people I'm a pastor, by the way, because that's a huge liability in a conversation like that. So I just said, you know, hey, so anyway, so we get on the plane. She says, so we get on the plane. She says, to my dismay, when I sit down, I realize I don't have my headphones, which is the one thing that I wanted on a 6 a.m. flight, amen? I just wanted my headphones. She said, and you were sitting two rows ahead of me. She said, and somehow you got into the exact same conversation with the guy next to you on the plane. To, he says, now, I don't know if you know this, but you don't really have an inside voice. <laughs> she says, so at this point, the entire economy comfort section, we're all listening to this story. For the next 45 minutes, 
you're explaining who Jesus is and how he came into your life and all this stuff. And she said, I did not ask for this. I was annoyed by this, but I had, I had literally nowhere else I could go but sit here and listen to this. She said, we got off the plane. She said, all I'm thinking at this point is, I just want to get to the Atlanta Bread Company at the other end of Terminal A, and I just want to get my bagel, and I just want to get on behind my, my day. I'm still half asleep. I'm stumbling through. I stand in line, and I hear this voice. And she says, I look up, and I'm like, my good, but she's, it, it's you. And I was like, I, what is wrong? I'm being punished by the Lord or something. Um, and she says, I look up there, and you're standing there, and there's a mom in front of you who's got two kids, and she's obviously having a rough day, and she can't find her money, and you just said, hey, don't worry about it. I'll take, and you told the lady, she said, I'll take care of, of this, and I'll take care of mine. And she said, I didn't say anything, but I thought, well, this guy doesn't have much social graces. He doesn't know how to use an inside voice in the morning, but at least he's not a jerk. She said, that was the end of it. She said, fast forward six months, and she says, I'm a nurse at Duke, and she says, um, I start a friendship. Somebody starts sharing Christ with me there and, and offers to study the Bible with me. And she says, about you know, three Bible studies in, I'm like, hey, um, I, this random guy I met in the airport said a lot of the same things and whatever. So this girl keeps trying to get me to come to her church. Come to my church with me. Come to my church. She says, we go in, we sit down, you know, comes out, the little video goes off. She said, you walk out on the stage. And I was like, oh my gosh. It's, and, it's, and she says, it was you. And she said, now fast forward another six months, I've been coming every single week and I know that I need to receive Christ. I pray to receive Christ, I get baptized and now I'm your daughter's small group leader. First time I hear about any of this, she is standing in my living room. All that is, is an awareness that God is at work around you and then putting your radar screen on and somebody else at Duke doing the same thing because God is the one that is writing those stories. That's all that it is. Now, I know some of you hear that. You're like, I could never strike up a conversation with a stranger in an airport who's reading an atheist book. Listen, I, all I'm doing is asking questions. That's all it is. It's just an awareness that God is at work. In fact, this is a different message for a different time. I actually jotted down a couple of questions. Some of you are going to be like, how do I actually do this? Let me just give you just real fat. If you can't write all these down, I'll, the transcript will be up on the website later. Um, a lot of times when people share with me something that's like a struggle, I'll just be like, hey, um, that really sounds like there are spiritual dimensions to this for you. Do you feel like you're on a spiritual journey? I feel so cheesy when I say that, but they're like, yeah, I do. Well, tell me about that. Here's my favorite one, though, is I've really experienced, I've recently experienced a renewal in my prayer life. Is there anything I can pray for you about? Now, whenever I'm talking to an atheist, an atheist always responds with two things. They say, number one, I don't believe in prayer or God. Number two, here are my requests. And then they give me their requests. <laughs> The point is, I know God is at work around me, so I'm just constantly running a metal detector over the sand and saying, God, where is it? I want to join you in it. Or to use a more biblical analogy, I'm a fisher of men, which means a good fisherman's always got his line in the water because you never know when God's going to send the big one under your boat. That's all that being sent is, is living with the awareness that God is at work around you, knowing that he has determined your personal border, so open your eyes. Before I go on to this third one, let me just say the, one other application here. God's doing that with this church and this city also. You know that you're not in Winston-Salem on accident. You're not here because this is a good demographic set for building a church. You are here because God decided he wanted to reach the city and he needed a church to do it. You didn't start the movement of God in the city. It didn't start with you. It won't stop with you. You are the reflection of it. And you've got to discern where God is at work. Years ago, years ago, I met with the mayor of our city and just said, this is about 12 years ago, and I was like, hey, we, we really feel like we're, we're kind of guests in this city, 
we feel like, you know, if anything, it's like we're this host culture trying to draw people out of the city up into the church. I was like, in our church, we want to be a blessing to the city. We want your problems to be our problems. So I said, Mr. Mayor, will you tell me the five worst things at that point we're in Durham, five most broken things in Durham? And he just rattled off. The homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, on the other high school dropout. So I wrote him down, and I went back, and I told our church. I said, y'all, I don't have any plans, any ideas for any of these. But can we just as a church begin to dream about what ministry looks like in those areas? I don't have any programs I can offer you. But will you open your eyes to where God might be at work in and around you in those things? And let's just bring those ideas to me, and then let's see what develops out of that. I can spend the next five sermons just telling you story after story of how this has come, not from me, but come from people in the congregation. I remember one of the first ones was um, there was a, a, a little elementary school that was 18 months away from being shut down in downtown Durham because it was the worst ranking school in the entire, you know, uh, Orange, Durham, Wake County, all of it is terrible. And so we got involved there and just met with the principal and said, what can we do to be a blessing here? And our people got involved tutoring kids and sponsoring classrooms and even doing some sneaky prayer walks around it, you know, from time to time. We did a joint Christmas program with them. We just, this whole, all these programs. Make a long story short, over four years, that school went from being the lowest ranked school in Durham County to being the highest ranked school in Durham County. And they did an article about it in the Durham Herald Sun, which is not a Christian newspaper. And uh, <laughs> the Durham Herald Sun said it, and I'm gonna quote it to you because the principal, they interviewed the principal about an incredible turnaround, and she's a great leader. I don't want to take any respect from her. But here's what she said in the Durham Herald Sun. She said, yes, a lot of people get the credit for this turnaround, but I've got to start where it started, and that is by thanking God and the people of the Summit Church who poured out his kindness to us and made all of this possible. We had people, um, just had a couple tell me in our, our church um, that they went into the foster um, care system and they come to that last interview with a social services worker, and the social services worker's like, well, why you know, do you want to do this? And uh, the guy said, well, since you ask, you know, at our church, we believe that Jesus, and the social worker literally cut them off and said, are you about to tell me about the Summit Church and the gospel, and that's what moved you into this? <laughs> and, um, and the guy was like, yeah. And she said, I cannot tell you how many times somebody has sat in that seat and said that very thing. She says, and we all know here in, in Wake and Durham County that we can all go back and we can actually chart the day that Summit Church got involved in ministering to the foster community here. In fact, they just recently told us COVID actually knocked that whole thing off. Um, there's 500 new foster placement um, uh, needs that we have in that. And that's the broken part of our city. And we say, that's our problem. That's not our city's problem. Open your eyes to where God might be at work around you because that's what it means to live sin is just to join him in what he is doing. One of my favorite, last story I'll tell you real quick. One of my favorite stories on this is I, I got a call shortly after all this happened from the, um, the mayor's office again. This, it was his assistant though this time. And uh, his assistant said, hey, the mayor wants you to come and speak at the city's annual Martin Luther King Jr. rally. Now, all cities in the South are racially divided, but Durham is especially got a lot of issues. And so I was like, did you mean to call me? And uh, she said, yes. I said, you know, because I'm not the typical speaker for the Martin Luther King Jr. rally. It's a big deal in Durham. Like, it's televised. All the city, county government officials are, are there. It's just, so I'm like, me? And she said, yes. I was like, what does he want me to talk about? She said, I don't know. I was like, well, how long do I have to talk? She said, 20 minutes. Can I, what can I say? She said, I don't care what you say. He doesn't care what you say. Just don't be controversial. 
I said, well, listen, ma'am, if you give me 20 minutes and a mic and a camera, I'm gonna talk about Jesus. She said, yeah, I, I don't think he's controversial. And I said, I, I, I just don't think you and I see him the same way. And, and she said, look, whatever, do you wanna do this? And I said, yes. So um, I was telling Kyle this last night. I, did, I, I typically don't get nervous anymore talking in front of crowds like him. You do it enough, you forget about it. I, I'm nervous. Back, so I, I, mean, I mean, we're talking like Joel Osteen about to preach at the Gospel Coalition, nervous. That's how I feel. And I'm back there like, and, and, and the county manager comes up to me and he's like, you look really nervous. And I was like, I, I am really nervous because he'd been to our church a few times and he knew what the normal me was like. He said, he said, you look really nervous. He says, why are you nervous? I said, because I don't know why I'm here. Nobody has told me why I'm here. He said, here's why you're here. He said, in our city council meeting, we were discussing all the different things in our city that are broken. And somebody made the observation, somebody who doesn't go to your church, that everywhere in our city, there's something that's broken. There's somebody there from the Summit Church who was trying to fix it. He said, I'm not even saying y'all are doing a great job. Sometimes y'all just in the way. He said, but you're there. And we thought that's the kind of spirit we wanted to see celebrated on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so, yes, I stood up there, and of course, I gave the respect that Martin Luther King Jr. was due. And then I used 15 of my 20 minutes just to talk about a Savior who come to earth from heaven and emptied himself so that you and I could be alive. It's just coming from a church that is looking around saying, where's God at work around me? I want to join him in it. Where is God at work in this city? Because that's what it means for you to live sent here, which leads me to number three. Number three, sent people listen for the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It being sent means joining God where he's at work around you. A really important skill to develop is the ability to discern where the Spirit is at work. You can see that right there in that passage. It's in the second verse, verse 22. Right after Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, to be honest, that's a little weird. That wasn't a common Hebrew greeting. It's not a Christian greeting if you're new to church. When I saw Kyle yesterday, I didn't say, hey, Kyle, and blow in his face or anything. It wasn't common back then either. It was, it was a foretaste of Pentecost. He wasn't officially giving them the Holy Spirit. He was giving them like an appetizer because he was wanting to reinforce with them in this conversation that the only possible way that they were gonna be due to able to do any of this was to be able to do it with the Holy Spirit. And he was saying, don't go out and try to do this stuff. Don't be sent on your own. Don't come up with good ideas. I need you to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit's presence with us in ministry would be more valuable than if we could have Jesus himself staying to lead our ministry efforts himself. In fact, this is another overlooked verse in John that's really important in being sent. John 16, 7, I think I'll put it on the screen here for you. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Now, Paul's right there. Jesus was not in the habit of telling lies. He didn't have to stop and clarify, okay, no, no, I'm being serious. And whenever he gives a little phrase like that, it's because what he's about to say is so mind-blowing that if you don't actively pay attention to it, it'll go right over your head. And I promise you, for 98.9% .9 of you, this is going right over your head. Look at what he says. It is to your, what's the word? Advantage, that I go away, because if I don't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not be able to come to you. But if I go, then I can send him to you. It is to your advantage that I leave. Y'all, how absurd must that have sounded to those first disciples? To my advantage? What would it be like to have Jesus as your ministry companion? How awesome is that experience? You go out for a tough day of ministry. 
a mission trip, you got some theological questions about Calvinism, you come home, bam, Jesus answers them perfectly. You're at a small group, you run out of checks mix, bam, Jesus multiplies the checks mix because so there's 12 baskets left over. Your dog dies, oh, and you loved your dog. Bam, Jesus raises your dog back from the dead. Your cat dies. Jesus digs a hole to help bury that cat, get rid of that forever, amen? All right. I mean, it'd be exactly what it's like, but the point is you get it, right? It would have been awesome. And now he's telling you, it's, if you knew what you were being offered in the Holy Spirit, you'd be glad I was leaving. I, I'm still having trouble getting there. I mean, like, imagine I stood up here. It's like, hey, the real reason I'm here is Kyle's, he's resigning. Oh, you're, you're mortified. I mean, he's your pastor. You love him. I'm like, no, 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 don't be sad. Because we've already got a new candidate for Two Cities Church. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to come and preach here next week. He's going to start a series called The Sermon on the Mount. You're going to want to bring your friends. I, I'm thinking all of you are going to be, I mean, like, we love Kyle, but forget Kyle. We got Jesus. You'd be excited. You'd be calling everybody. Here's a question. Are you as excited this morning that you're walking out of here with the Holy Spirit inside of you and that you're a part of a group of people that have the Holy Spirit inside of them? Because if you're not as excited or more excited at that that you would be with Jesus being here next week, then you don't understand John 16, 7. Because when John 16, 7 tells you it is, is, is to your advantage to have the Holy Spirit, because at that point, it's no longer about ability. It's just about availability to the Holy Spirit. And that means you got to discern the ability to listen to his voice. And I know that's the million-dollar question. Like, well, how do I know when he's speaking to me? And that is a different sermon series for a different day. You should bug Kyle to preach that message series to you. How do you know what the Holy Spirit's voice sounds like? Because here's what's frustrating to me. Um, the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts 59 times. You can count them. Of the 59 times the Holy Spirit shows up, in 36 of them, he is speaking. Speaking. Now, I, I get it. Things are different now. They were apostles. They were writing the Bible. I, I understand that. But y'all, you cannot convince me that the only book that we have that tells us stories about what it looks like to walk with the Spirit, you can't convince me that it's filled with a, a bunch of stories of people whose experiences have nothing in common with us. How would that be possible? In fact, John Newton, the Puritan, used to say, how is it that what was so essential in the first century would become irrelevant in ours? What's frustrating to me is that the 36 times, it never tells us exactly how he speaks. It just says he spoke. Acts 13, 2, um, the Holy Spirit said, separate Barnabas and Paul for ministry. I'm like, ooh, that's awesome. Well, how did he say it? Did it appear on the screen? You write it on the wall? Everybody think the same thought at once? Had a little dialogue bu bubble pop up above their head? Was that the sign that he was, how do you know? It doesn't tell us. Y'all, I have to think the ambiguity is intentional, right? I mean, because more havoc has been wreaked in the world following the words God just said than any other phrase. So I think there's always supposed to be a humility about hearing from the Holy Spirit, but the point is this. While there is ambiguity in how the Holy Spirit speaks, there is no ambiguity in that he speaks. And if you're gonna be a church, you're gonna be a person who lives sent, you've got to discern his voice. Because the entire history of the book of Acts is not great leaders doing great things for God. It's just people that are showing up saying, Lord, here am I, send me. It's Philip, a layman in Acts 8, who obeys the Holy Spirit to go up in the middle of nowhere. And along by comes a guy we now call the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip is in the right place at the right time, obeying the Holy Spirit, shares Christ with him. 
According to Eusebius, the church historian, that Ethiopian eunuch goes home to sub-Saharan Africa where he is from and not only starts a church, but a church planting movement that is in existence until today. You realize that's the first international mission trip in the Bible, at least in the New Testament? And it didn't come from the apostles planning, didn't come from some rich person funding the trip. It just came from somebody saying yes to the Holy Spirit. You gotta learn to listen to what he says, which leads me to number four. I'm gonna land this plane here. Number four, sent people see all of life as a response to Jesus. As the Father has sent me, that's how I'm sending you. Just as Jesus was sent for you, so now you were sent for others. Here's the question. Where would you be without Jesus had Jesus not been sent for you? I'll give you a, at least one answer to that. You'd be at the exact same place that millions of people are in the world without you. You see, the preaching of the gospel is an essential part of the completion of the gospel. It's like Martin Luther used to say, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. You, millions of people around the world and tens of thousands of people in this city in the exact same place that you would have been had Jesus not been sent for you. And so Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And somebody who's sent says, I'm going to be for other people what Jesus was for me. When I was growing up, my mom and dad, we grew up right here in Winston-Salem, like, I heard my mom and dad used to always tell me the story of C.T. Studd. Is that name familiar to you? See, if you've been around church for a while, he was one of the most famous missionaries of the 19th century. Now, he was, name doesn't mean much to you now, but he was like the greatest athlete at the turn of the 19th, uh, turn of the 20th century. Cricket, I know, kind of a lame sport, but he, back then it was like the rage. And he was the LeBron James of cricket. And if you're going to be a professional athlete, Stud, I mean, that's a great name. Um, C.T. Stud, at the height of his career, C.T. Stud resigns and says, I'm giving my life to take the gospel to China and then India where he would one day die. Now, just imagine if LeBron James did that today. It was that kind of sensation back then. And everybody asked him, why on earth would you do that? He was in hundreds of interviews, and he developed this little phrase that I love. You might have heard it. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If this is what Jesus gave up to come to get me, how dare I withhold what I have to take him to others? Now, living scent is costly. It means you have uncomfortable conversations. It means sometimes you change vacation plans. Sometimes you change retirement plans. It means sometimes you change life savings plans. Sometimes you change every, it means a whole reordering of your priorities. And there's only one motivation that'll actually push you all the way to do that. And that is when you understand what Jesus did for you that you're just being now asked to do for others. And the question you gotta ask yourself is, do you actually really totally believe this gospel? I know you say you believe it, but do you actually believe it? The two words used in John more often than any others are the words believe and the word sent. Believe is used 99 times, sent is used 60 sometimes. And the reason those are the two repetitive words in John is because you can't be one without the other. If you're not feeling sent, you don't actually believe, right? I mean, I'm not trying to be mean about it. I was sharing Christ one time with a girl named Rhonda. She was from the Northeast. She'd grown up, you know, in America, but she heard of Jesus, but she'd never heard the gospel. And as I'm explaining the gospel to her, she's got all these questions, and we're going back and forth. 
And Rhonda says to me, she says, you actually believe this? And I said, well, yeah. You believe that this Jesus died on a cross, and that makes a difference in heaven and hell for every person? I said, yes, I believe that. She said, because you don't act like you believe it. I said, what do you mean? I'm, I'm standing here telling you about it. She said, no, no, you were standing here trying to win a debate with me. You're trying to score points. She said, if I believed what you said you believed, she said, I'm not sure how I'd make it to the day. She says, I'm not sure how I wouldn't burst into tears every single time I saw a friend who didn't know Christ. And I know for sure I would not be able to rest until every person that I knew and loved had had a chance to hear and respond to the gospel. I knew what she was saying was exactly right. That a lot of us who say we believe the gospel, there's no possible way that we actually do if there are people in our lives that we love and call our friends that have not heard this message from us. To believe is to be sent. And some people see all of their lives as a response to Jesus. Two cities, you're sent here. And that's not what Kyle's thing is, not what Donovan's thing is. It's not just for a handful of families. You are sent here, and you need to be a part of this movement because this is the glory days of the church. God is moving again in his church, and you can see it. You are a part of it. And I don't want you to take any of it for granted. I don't want you to get left behind. You are not an observer in this. You are a participant. That's why God makes churches succeed, is so they can be sent. God did not make the Summit Church blow up so that we could have, you know, big church and big platform and really work on my ego. A few weeks ago, I was preaching a vision sermon, and somebody came up after the thing and said, Pastor, you're just not, you're not just a good preacher. You're a great leader. So on the way home, I asked my wife, I'm like, Veronica, how, how many truly great leaders do you think there are in the Christian world? She said, one less than you're thinking. <laughs> I'm like, God didn't do any of this to puff up my ego, your ego. He didn't do it to give you a big, comfortable church. He did it because he wants to reach the city and through here to reach the world. Are you ready to be sent? Why don't you bow your heads if you would, and let me just give you a couple questions. There's a lot of ways the Holy Spirit might apply this to you. I'm just going to ask two. Here's question number one. Do you know that Jesus came for you? I imagine there might be somebody here like, this is my first time in church, and this is why I don't like to come to church, because they're always trying to convert me. Let me go ahead and make this really clear, okay? Yes, we're trying to convert you. How could we not? How could we not? We believe that Jesus Christ died as the substitute for your sin. That's the core of everything else. Of course we want you to know about it. We're not going to force you to believe it. We want to take you to take your time. But he's changed our lives, and we believe he can change yours too, and we believe that he can forgive your sins for eternity. So yes, we would love to be a part of that process. Maybe you're ready to receive him as your Savior. If so, then right now to say, Lord Jesus, I'm ready. I'm ready to give myself to you. I receive you right now as Savior, and I surrender as Lord. Say that to him right there in your heart. I'm ready ready to receive you as Savior and Lord. Here's my second question. Believer. Instead of thinking big, huge things, why don't you think very narrowly in your life, who is God sending you to? Just let the Holy Spirit put something in your heart. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody that you need to call this afternoon. I, I don't know who it is. Let the Holy Spirit decide. Just say right now, Holy Spirit, who are you sending me to? 
And I'm going to assume that whatever name, whatever face pops into my heart is a conversation you want me to have today. Father, I've prayed all week that you would fulfill your word to raise up laborers for the harvest. Only you can do that. So I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.